It's said that all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I'd like to introduce you to an American family. The year was 1996. The place? Boulder, Colorado. John Ramsey, 53 years old, was the CEO of a successful computer technology company. His wife, Patsy, 39, was a stay-at-home mother. They had a nine-year-old son, Burke, and a six-year-old daughter, Jean Benet. On December 25, 1996, the Ramseys had Christmas dinner at the home of their friends, the Whites. After dinner, the children played with their Christmas presents. The parents took pictures. Everything seemed quite normal. Around 9 o'clock, the Ramseys decided to head home. It was getting late. They needed to be up early the next morning because they were going on vacation. They said their goodbyes, they got in the car, and they drove away. The next morning at 5.52 a.m., Patsy Ramsey called 911. About 10 minutes after this call, a police officer arrived at the Ramsey home. The Ramseys lived in a large house in a very nice neighborhood. The house was decorated for the holidays, with oversized plastic candy canes in the front yard and Christmas lights in the trees. The officer's name was Rick French. He went up to the front door and was met by the parents. Patsy was totally hysterical, crying and frantic. John was more composed, pragmatic. This is from Officer French's police report, which he wrote that afternoon. John advised me that their six-year-old daughter, John Benet, was missing and that their nine-year-old son, Burke, was asleep upstairs. John directed me through the house and pointed out a three-page handwritten note which was laid on the wooden floor just west of the kitchen area. He told me that his wife had found the note on the bottom step of a spiral staircase which led to the upper levels of the house. Officer French proceeded to read that three-page ransom note. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. 
We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. The note continued in this unusual style. It stated very clearly that Jean Bonnet was safe and unharmed. It laid out a set of very specific instructions for John Ramsey. It ordered him to drive to the bank, withdraw $118,000 in cash, and put it in an attaché case. It said the kidnappers would call between 8 and 10 a.m. to instruct him on the delivery of the ransom. Strangely, it said if he left early, this group of foreign kidnappers might call him earlier, and he might get his daughter back sooner. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. The note also concluded in a very unusual way. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Victory, SBTC. Officer French hadn't really been trained to deal with a situation like this. Boulder, Colorado was a fairly quiet city. There'd been only one homicide in 1996, and kidnappings by foreign militants were pretty much unheard of. The first thing he did was make a quick search of the three-story house in its basement to find any traces left by the kidnappers. A quick inspection of the interior of the house, as well as talking to Mr. Ramsey, indicated that there was no obvious signs of a forced entry or struggle. Mr. Ramsey told me that the house appeared to have been locked up as it had been left. Officer French also made sure to ask the Ramseys when they had last seen their daughter. They told me that they had spent Christmas night with the Whites and that they arrived home at 10 p.m. Mr. Ramsey said that he read to both kids for a short time and then they were in bed by 10.30. Mrs. Ramsey said that John Binet had been dressed in white long underwear and a red turtleneck. Officer French called for backup. After finding no trace of Jean Binet in her bedroom, he had determined it was, quote, possibly an actual kidnapping and needed to control the crime scene. Meanwhile, there were other people arriving at the home. Immediately after the 911 call, Patsy Ramsey had started calling family friends and asking them to come over. One of the people she called was Fleet White, the father from the family the Ramseys had Christmas dinner with the previous night. Patsy also called their friends the Fernies, who arrived shortly after the Whites. Other police officers began arriving at the scene, photographing any possible entry points and dusting for fingerprints. The officers at the scene that morning later testified that they received very little assistance from their superiors. But there was one important piece of guidance from the police commander John Eller, later described by Detective Larry Mason. Commander Eller had ordered that the Ramseys be treated as victims, not suspects. The Ramseys were an influential family, Eller told Mason, who realized that this message must have affected the behavior of all the officers at the scene. That quote is from Lawrence Schiller's book, Perfect Murder, Perfect Town. At seven o'clock, they decided to wake up Burke, the nine-year-old brother, who was still apparently asleep upstairs just down the hall from Jean Bonnet's bedroom. John Ramsey went up and got Burke out of bed. Police didn't get a chance to question Burke right away, as John Ramsey assured them he'd been asleep all night and hadn't heard anything. Burke was taken out of the home and driven to the White's house, where he remained for the rest of the day. Just after eight o'clock, a detective arrived. Her name was Linda Arndt, 
and it was her job to coordinate the response to the kidnapper's phone call. According to the ransom note, there was going to be a phone call from the author, and they were supposed to call between 8 and 10 a.m., so I was supposed to get to the house for purposes of monitoring the phone call. Detective Arndt also spoke to John Ramsey about the last time he saw Jean Bonnet. This is from Detective Arndt's police report. John, Patsy Burke, and John Bonnet had returned home at approximately 10 p.m. John told me that Patsy and Burke immediately went to bed. John had read a book to John Bonnet, tucked her into bed, then John went to bed. By this point, the house was getting pretty crowded. The family priest was there, consoling Patsy. While Detective Arndt set up a phone tap, John Ramsey was busy making arrangements to get the ransom money. The note had been very specific. It had told John to go to the bank and get the money without contacting anyone. But instead, they decided that morning that family friend John Fernie should go to the bank instead. Fernie was friends with one of the bank managers in Boulder, so it was more likely that he'd actually be able to withdraw $118,000 in cash. So, John Fernie headed off to the bank, while everybody else stayed at the house, waiting for the kidnapper's call. During all this time, Patsy Ramsey was totally inconsolable, lying on a couch and crying hysterically. Linda Arndt asked the Ramseys if there was anyone they knew who might have wanted to kidnap their child. The Ramseys didn't say much, but they gave her a few names, a former housekeeper and a colleague from John's company. One of the police officers, Robert Whitson, asked the Ramseys for samples of their handwriting. John Ramsey handed over two notepads, one belonging to him and one belonging to Patsy. In his report from that day, Officer Whitson admits he didn't look at the notepads, he simply took them as evidence, left the home, and started checking the neighborhood for, quote, any suspicious-looking people or vehicles. Back in the house, Linda Arndt was under the same orders as the other officers that morning to treat this as a real kidnapping, and not to treat the Ramseys like suspects. She obeyed these orders, but according to her later interviews, there was something about the whole scene that just didn't seem right. A missing child, a bizarre ransom note, no apparent signs of forced entry. As a detective, Linda Arndt was trained to notice details. She noticed that Patsy Ramsey was wearing makeup. She noticed that John and Patsy were not speaking to each other. When 10 o'clock arrived, Linda Arndt noticed something else. Remember what the ransom note said. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. 10 o'clock comes and goes and there's no acknowledgement within the house from anyone that the deadline imposed by the author of the ransom note has come and gone. Around 1 o'clock, there was still no word from the kidnappers. Between 12.30 and 1 p.m., I talked with Fleet White. I told White that I needed his help to keep John Ramsey's mind occupied. I then spoke to John Ramsey. I suggested to John Ramsey that he and Fleet White check the house from top to bottom to see if anything belonging to John Bonet had been taken or left behind. After I had spoken to John, he immediately went to the basement door. John Ramsey and Fleet White headed downstairs to the basement. The Ramseys had a large basement with several rooms. It was different from the rest of the home. While upstairs everything was fairly neat and tidy, the basement was extremely cluttered, with cardboard boxes, piles of old newspapers, and broken toys lying in heaps on the floor. The basement had been searched twice that morning, once by Officer French and once by Fleet White, 
both of whom were looking for the kidnappers' potential entry points. In that basement there were several doors leading to various rooms and closets. One of these doors was latched with a little wooden peg at the top of the door. It led to a small storage room, which Patsy apparently used to hide the children's Christmas presents. The Ramses referred to that room as the wine cellar. When John and Fleet White got down to the basement, John Ramsey went to that door. He unlatched it, opened it, and stepped inside. I was standing in the hallway, facing the door to the basement, when I saw John Ramsey coming up the final three or four stairs. John was carrying a young girl in his arms. John was carrying the young girl in front of him, using both of his arms to hold her around her waist area. The young girl's head was above John Ramsey's head while he was carrying her. Her body appeared to have rigor mortis. At that moment, Linda Arndt says, all the questions that had been in her mind that morning suddenly started to come together. Everything that I had noted that morning that stuck out instantly made sense. And Jean Bonnet was clearly dead. Then she's been dead for a while. Jean Bonnet Ramsey had been hidden inside the family home, inside that darkened room, concealed under a blanket behind a latched door. I ordered him to put Jean Bonnet down. I knelt next to her and I leaned down to her face. And John leaned down opposite me. And um, his face was just inches from mine. And we had a nonverbal exchange that I will never forget. Jean Benet Ramsey was wearing a white shirt and white long johns. Her arms were up above her head and seemed to be bound with some kind of cord. There had been a piece of tape on her mouth, but John Ramsey had taken it off and left it down in the cellar. It was clear that Jean Bonnet had been strangled. Around her neck there was what appeared to be a specialized strangulation device with a wooden handle. There was also a large red mark on her neck. Detective Arndt told John Ramsey to call 911 and then to go to his wife. He left and Linda Arndt picked up the body and carried it into the living room. After just a minute or two, John Ramsey returned. As John entered the room, he asked me if he could cover up John Bonnet. John grabbed a throw blanket that was lying on a chair located immediately inside the living room. John placed this blanket over John Bonnet's body before I had a chance to speak. John Ramsey seemed eager to explain things to Linda Arndt, to offer his own rationalizations of the events that were unfolding. John told me I was right. It had to be someone who knew the family. John told me that no one knows the wine cellar in the basement, and therefore it had to be an inside job. Linda Arndt realized that she had to clear the scene. She told John that he could say goodbye to his daughter, but that he could not move her body. John Ramsey laid down next to John Bonnet, placed an arm around her body, and made sounds as though he was crying. After a few seconds, Patsy Ramsey came into the room. According to Linda Arndt, Patsy couldn't even walk without assistance. She was so hysterical. She threw herself onto her child, screaming in agony and praying out loud. Patsy said, Jesus, you raised Lazarus from the dead. Raise my baby from the dead. At this point, the entire nature of the crime had changed. 
the Ramses had presented this as a kidnapping, a missing persons case, and they'd all been focused on that phone call. Now it was a homicide, and the police needed to reevaluate their response. Detective Larry Mason wanted to talk to the Ramses as soon as possible. Mason knew that there was no time to lose in clearing the house, securing the crime scene, and getting a search warrant. He decided he would move the Ramses and their friends to the Holiday Inn at 28th and Baseline. He wanted everyone in separate rooms so that he could interview them independently. Around 1.40, just over half an hour after the discovery of the body, Detective Bill Palmer overheard John Ramsey making a phone call. John Ramsey was talking on the phone to his private pilot. He was making plans to fly somewhere before nightfall. Moments later, Ramsey told Detective Mason that he, his wife, and his son would be flying to Atlanta that evening. He said he had something really important to attend to. You can't leave, Mason told him. We have a lot of unfinished business here. We have to talk to you. Police then told John about the plan to go to the hotel and question them separately. But John didn't want to do that. Instead, he said they wanted to stay at the home of their family friends, the Fernies, before talking to police. Give us a day, John Ramsey said quietly. We just lost our child. Give us a day. This put the police in a difficult position. The detectives had a brief discussion about John's proposal. Remember the order from the police commander, John Eller. Eller had ordered that the Ramseys be treated as victims, not suspects. The police decided to trust John Ramsey, to take him at his word. They let John and Patsy walk out of the house. Little did the police know, the Ramseys would not participate in police interviews for four months, 125 days to be exact. The Ramseys would leave the state in that time, they would appear on CNN, all this before finding time to cooperate with police in the investigation of their daughter's murder. On day one, the police had no way of knowing this. Their failure to separate and interview the Ramseys immediately was a crucial mistake. After the house was cleared, the police investigation began. Soon the coroner arrived. His name was Dr. John Meyer. He took a quick look at the body in the home and saw pretty much what everyone else had already seen, the cords and the marks on her neck. But when he got the body to the autopsy room, he made some surprising discoveries. Although the strangulation looked severe from the outside, with the abrasions on the neck and the cord appearing to be embedded in the skin, the autopsy showed that in fact there were no internal injuries to the muscles of Jean Benet's neck. When Dr. Meyer examined the scalp, he discovered something else. Upon reflection of the scalp, there is found to be an extensive area of scalp hemorrhage along the right temporoparietal area. He hadn't noticed it at first, but now he discovered that Jean Benet had a skull fracture, a fracture that was consistent with a single impact to the head. But that's not all. In the genital area, there were traces of blood, which someone had attempted to wipe away. There was an injury in this area that was consistent with a sexual assault that night. This was of course highly unexpected, as the ransom note had given no indication whatsoever of a sexual motive. Dr. Meyer also noted, quote, chronic inflammation to this area. Experts would later identify a second injury to the genitals, an injury that occurred several days prior to Jean-Benet Ramsey's death. 
The coroner also noticed something about the cords on Jean Benet's wrists. They were tied over the sleeves of her shirt and were so loose he could actually slip his finger between the cords and her wrist. With 14 inches of cord between each of the loops, there was no way it could have actually restrained Jean Benet. It looked more like something that had been added for the sake of appearances. Meanwhile, the police made other discoveries. They found that the ransom note actually came from Patsy Ramsey's notepad. And that strangulation device turns out it wasn't so specialized after all. It was actually very simple. Just a piece of cord tied to a broken paintbrush. A paintbrush which would later be traced to Patsy Ramsey's set of brushes. In fact, every single object that created the appearance of a kidnapping could be easily found in any suburban home. It's been 25 years since the death of Jean Benet Ramsey. These days, there are competing theories about what actually happened to this child. It's become a famous example of a case in which all the evidence seems to point in different directions. And indeed, when you first look at this case, it sure does seem like everything is uncertain. But is it really as ambiguous as it seems? If we put aside some of the more simplistic and sensationalized narratives of the Ramsey case, if we instead confine ourselves to the historical facts, we can see there's a deeper, far more interesting story here. A story about power, about privilege, and how they affect the American justice system. It's a story that's more relevant now than ever. In this eight-part series, we're going to take a close look at the evidence and the theories. In doing so, we can at least begin to piece together what really happened that night. Listen carefully. Features music from Coag and Mew on YouTube and Lucor on Audio Jungle. Vocal contributions from Eric Peabody and Meredith Nudo. Production assistance provided by Magnolia Studios. Visit our site for full attributions and references.